Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 145. This is kind of a fun number. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty excited for 150 to come up pretty soon, but 145 also just feels exciting. Um, Today's episode is with author and filmmaker Brian Young. I loved talking with Brian and I loved re-listening to our conversation and taking notes and kind of just thinking about all of the wonderful things he had to say and all the things we got into together. Um, You know, I'm a broken record about it, but this podcast is such a gift to me. And I hope I hope you guys love hearing those kinds of things too. It's just like such a lovely little art brainstorm, you know? It's just my favorite. And uh yeah, this this episode is is a great one. Um, I don't really have any announcements. I think the main thing that I want you to know and that I'll probably keep saying over the next couple of weeks is that I am working on a new project and eventually it will be new music. But right now I'm in a research phase and I'm I'm very I'm being very active and I'm really trying to document the kind of um pre-creation research like the pre pre-music writing research that I'm doing um in my mailing list and on my blog um it's kind of an experiment to um be talking more about this process and I'm I'm really enjoying doing it. I'm kind of trying to figure out like how I want to talk about it and kind of just following my heart and my like artistic impulses as I'm doing that. So if uh, you're interested in that, follow along. You can sign up for the mailing list on my website and then I usually post a version of whatever I'm, whatever essays I'm sending to the mailing list. I usually post a version of them on like my blog on my website as well. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in kind of knowing what this process is being like, um, yeah, follow along there. I'm, I'm thinking about it so much. I'm, I'm being much more active in my, in my private life in terms of art matters, um, than I'm being like, you know, publicly, but I'm trying to kind of close that gap and, um, and share as much as I can about kind of what I'm thinking about and what I'm doing. So yeah, that's available. And you know, the hallowed wide is out. It's been out for a while. Um, I still have, I still have failed to release the album as an album. It's just 12 singles right now. So I'm getting on that. I'm just like, you know, trying to be present and, um, you know, focus on what is kind of most interesting and immediate to me at any given time. And I'm, uh, I'm thinking I'll kind of like, uh, do a proper like full album release once the UVU semester is over because I'm just really focused on being present with my students. That's kind of one of the art things that I'm doing and teaching some new classes and just trying to kind of give my students like the very, very best of my art brain. And um, yeah, so the semester just has a few weeks left. We're closing it out and then Um, And then I'll kind of be repurposing all of that time for other, you know, other things. All right. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Brian now. Brian Young works across many different media. His work as a writer and producer has been called Filmmaking Gold by the New York Times. He's also published comic books with Slave Labor Graphics and Image Comics. He's been a regular contributor for the Huffington Post, StarWars.com, Star Wars Insider Magazine, SYFY, and Film. Um, and Oh, sorry. SYFY and backslash film. Those are separate things. 
Sorry, Brian, I'm a noob. I'm just reading these. I'm just knowing what these are. And he was the founder and editor-in-chief of the geek news and review site Big Shiny Robot. In 2014, he wrote the critically acclaimed history book A Children's Illustrated History of Presidential Assassination. He co-authored Robotech, the the Mac Cross Saga RPG. Role-playing game. And has written two books in the Battletech universe, Honor's Gauntlet and A Question of Survival. His latest book, The Big Bang Theory Book of Lists, The Big Bang Theory Book of Lists, is a number one bestseller on Amazon. He teaches writing for Writer's Digest, Script Magazine, and the University of Utah. Follow him on Twitter at SwankMotron or visit www. Oh my gosh, you guys know what it was. Dot SwankMotron.com. Okay, so that's where you can find more about Brian. And right now, you can stay right here and learn a little bit more about Brian. Here comes. Enjoy. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. What kind of of energy do we find you in today? What's your your vibe on Um, on this Friday? I'm good. I got some work done this morning on a project I'm really excited about. Good. I also like woke up bright and early, which is not super usual for Mm me. Kind of like a nighttime person and uh, got some work done. So I'm also feeling like productive. I'm I'm, I'm very much an early morning productive person because I feel like I've pulled one over on everyone. If I get up early and get my work done before like 10. See, I feel the opposite where like, I feel like I've pulled one over on people when I'm working like until 3 a.m., mm-hmm. which is <laughs> just, you know, I'm too tired for that. <laughs> I'm too tired in the morning. Yeah. It's just like that kind of like internal clock thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was reading like your bio earlier this week and kind of looking at some of your stuff and I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I don't know if you like talked with Jared or Johnny or like any of our mutual friends who've been on the podcast, um, but but the kind of the kind of gist of this discussion is um, we're talking about like your creative development, your kind of like theories and philosophies about art. And what I find helps me to ask better questions about my guests present is to kind of like understand their past. Mm-hmm. So where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Um, I like most Utahns, I came from California. Okay. Um, I came from Arizona. So. Yeah. So I was born in Arizona, moved before I remember sure. to California. And I came to Utah County actually when I was 12 or 13. Okay. Uh, so, wait, then, so you lived in California in your childhood. Yeah. Okay. Let's start there. Let's like spend a okay. little time in the childhood. Where are you in like the birth order if you have siblings? I'm the oldest. Okay. I'm also and I've the got oldest. Four siblings below me. Okay. Cool. So, um, the first thing I want to talk about is just, uh, what, when you kind of like look back on your childhood and, or, you know, talk to adults who knew you as a child, um, what, what would you report or would they report was kind of the first evidence that you were a creative? So I think, 
there was definitely like I've found I've going through my old school papers, like creative writing stories. I was writing as far back as like kindergarten. Yeah. Um, I was super into reading. Like I taught myself to read before preschool. Cool. Um, so it was just like the written word was really something important to me. Literally as as early as my brain was capable of it. Yeah. Do you feel because this is something I, I I like to ask writers of all kinds. Do you feel like you're like how does your interest happen in terms of like, you know, story versus like language? Because the, the way you put that made it sound like they're both important. They but. both are. They both are important for me. I think part of it is um, story was something that I connected with at a really early age. Um, thanks to Star Wars, actually, of all things, and realizing that story had a power to help us understand ourselves and the world around us. Yeah. But that love of the written world in parallel um, the written word and the written world in yeah, parallel. I was into both. And having that, that, <laughs> I mean, that just then. <laughs> yeah, no, like love that, 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 that love affair with language and how yeah. it works and, um, etymology and like where words came from was always yeah. something I was really interested in. I got, I got way too into just wanting to learn words as a kid. And as, so even as a little guy. Yeah. I so I was, that. I would go through like the dictionary and yeah. Like it caused problems for me later where everybody was like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, please dumb your language down. Oh my gosh. I love it. I still like, so my husband, he has a PhD in material science. And a lot of the time I feel like he's smarter than me. Like he's just, you know, cause he's really great at like math and science. I was good at math like in high school, but it's been a minute. Um, But, uh, but every once in a while I'll like say a word that he doesn't know. And I feel like. Yeah. Proud. I, I don't write, um, I don't write books, but I write a ton of prose and I, I'm a songwriter. So my, I feel like I'm a, I'm a writer too. Just, you know, yeah. my medium is kind of more specifically music, but, um, you said something before, like, th- um, you were struck at an early age by like how story, like, I forget exactly how you put it, but can you tell me like what that kind of meant to you, like as a child? And then I'll keep asking. Like, yeah, no, kind of this, is, this might get a little bit of a a downer a little bit, but But like, it's just fine. Yeah. Life is your life. Um, so I grew up in a very like abusive household and it was very problematic for me. And star Wars really helped me unlock this idea. Like return of the Jedi is the first movie I ever remember watching. And I remember through my childhood connecting so specifically to that narrative Mm -hmm. where Luke Skywalker is the hero and he has a villain for a father. And that was something that I saw reflected at home. And that movie gave me a lot of hope that like maybe one day I'd be able to take off my dad's mask. Right. And that maybe there would be a good person under there somewhere. It worked out a lot better for Luke than it did for me. Well, if I can just say like, I also, my, both of my parents are narcissistic. My mom is passed away and I'm, I'm not in contact with my dad anymore. So the abuse that was in my childhood was like a lot of like emotional and verbal abuse. Yeah. I, I don't know what you were dealing with, but, um, I definitely understand yeah. not feeling safe at home and yeah. not feeling like your parents are people that are going to nurture you or like tr- that you can trust. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, but, but the power in the story yeah. of, of Luke there was that he found his own power there and he found his own nurturing and he found his own family at that right. point. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I've spoken to my father and how old am I? It's probably been close to 25 years. Wow. I'm sorry. Um, that's, 
No, it's better. It's better that we don't talk. I tell people that too when I tell, because my mom passed away like four years ago and people will be like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's, it's much easier for me now. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things like sometimes. It still is a grief though. I don't know if you feel like that, but. No, I, I think it is. I think, um, having kids of my own, it, it was a struggle to like see my kids get older than I was when my dad and I lost contact or when I severed contact for me to just go like, you know, I'd look at my watch, you know, still sometimes I do right. Where like, I'm counting down the days before they go like, nah, I'm done. Like you were bad at this. And, um, I mean, fortunately I haven't had that situation and don't think that they've experienced anything close to what I ever did so that they, um, wouldn't do that. But, but, um, yeah, no, it, it was, it, it definitely, informed a lot of my creative life um having to deal with that and having to escape into those worlds like there were definitely days where um i would literally be hiding in closets writing my stories right trying to stay safe and unseen and unheard because that would cause problems for me i really deeply relate to like the early development of creativity being like inextricably linked to trying to kind of like solve this problem of like my, my own, um, lack of belonging or lack of kind of safety. Um, it's something that I think like when I started this podcast, cause you know, like I mentioned before this, this will be like episode, you know, right. We're pretty close to 150. I think it'll be somewhere in the 140s. And I started this podcast three years ago. And I, I think at that point I was just starting to kind of like deal with like some of like my trauma. And I think like, you know, it's this question that I have of like, am I creative? Like because of these things or like, I don't know, but I, I, what I want to say is that I think I had this idea that the vast majority of artists come from trauma. And what I've learned doing this podcast is that that is not the case. Yeah, (laughs) Um, no, I think But for those of us who have, it's an interesting thing. I think there's something to, uh, Kurt Vonnegut said that he had this theory about the arts that he called like the canary in the coal mine theory. Right. And that artists are so sensitive that we're like the, the canaries in the coal mine of culture. And mm. we would, before the rest of society knew anything was going on, we'd be keeling over screaming, you know, like dying because of what's going on because we're so sensitive. And I think that some people come by that sensitivity naturally and, and thankfully for them, they don't have to go through that trauma for it. And, you know, the more I go through therapy, the more I work on my art, the more I work on art through therapy or the therapy through my art and things, mm-hmm. the more I feel like I was already sort of a sensitive person, but the trauma just sort of like heightened that. Sure. Um, so I, I definitely think the commonality is that sensitivity rather than the trauma per se. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was something that kind of surprised me. And I, it's something that I think I wish I would have known like in college, like not all of my creative peers are traumatized. <laughs> like it's, it's a it's, different thing. It's interesting having conversations with fellow writers or fellow artists. And then, you know, I had, I had this experience. I went to, um, Stoker con, a few months ago, which is a horror writers convention. And people were like, what, what, uh, 
you know, what was it in your childhood that turned you onto horror? And there, everybody was going around the room and it was everybody like, oh, it was this scary the movie. Exorcist. I responded, yeah, yeah, like it was the scary movie. And then they got to me and I'm like, ah, we don't want to do this. And they're like, yeah. no, really, what was it? And I was like, I was horribly physically abused as a child. Yeah. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, no, it's okay now. Like, I'm here. Like, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. Um, no one should go through that. But it, it's it's funny going through that where you realize like, oh, um, not everybody goes through that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I still sometimes like find myself surprised. My therapist, um, she, my, my former therapist, she's like retired from the profession now, but she asked me maybe like a year into this podcast cause she liked to listen to it. She was like, how are you doing with like the fact that almost nobody else like had a lack of support or like, <laughs> like, and I feel like, cause she, she was kind of thinking like, does that make you feel more isolated? But the way that I feel about it on most days is like, I think it's excellent, you know, that like yeah. most people, um, most artists had, you know, parents who really supported them. So can I ask you, like, did your creativity feel like problem solving to you or like an escape or like, what was it? It depended, sure. right? Like I, there was definitely some that was problem solving, helping me understand people. Some of it was definitely an escape. Um, some of it was definitely just, I didn't know where to put all of that creative energy totally. and needed to find somewhere to do it. And the written word was, um, what I needed to do. And then I sort of took a diversion into film. Um, yeah. and I still love film and want to do more with film, but, um, it takes a lot more to convince a whole bunch of more people like where I feel very control in control and self-motivated and my success hinges solely on my performance right. and my prose. I really get and, that. As and well. in a film, it's like I've got to convince fifty people right. to to hinge their performance and to on that. give like a lot of money. Yeah, like you have to have money up front to write a film. Where like for other kinds of art, you can kind of do it and then shop it around. I know it's like it's a it's a different thing, but yeah, film film yeah. is film is necessarily like extremely collaborative um, in a way that. I don't know, maybe but writing isn't quite... Early in, my, early in my career, though, I really found a community that was supportive of that. And so that's what we did for a long time. And then it was sort of realizing how hard that was when the economy sort of tanked in yeah. 2007 or so that yeah. I was like, I can't put all my eggs in this basket. Right. I need to work. I need to go back to the writing that sort of got me through my right. younger years and um, want to work on those on parallel tracks. And sure. Well, let's connect some more of those dots because I'm I'm really interested in human development and kind of like how our the development of our like hard skills and these like softer skills of like developing perspective, how they kind of happen like along with the development of like our minds. Um, so maybe by the time you were like, yeah, right around the time you're moving to Utah, at that point, were you like, were you entering story contests? Were, were you writing in a way that like your school teachers were kind of aware of you? Like how much had that kind of identity developed at that point? So I was, I still have, um, in, in, in fifth grade. Um, so it was just probably two years before I moved to Utah, um, I had won silver, a silver medal in our creative or our academic Olympics. And it was in creative writing. Cool. And it was like, that was what I wanted to do, but I didn't know where to put that. And when I came here in seventh grade, we had sort of moved too late in the registration for sure. me to pick any classes that I wanted to sure. take. So I didn't really get to nurture that for that year mm. outside of with my friends and on my own. And so it was in eighth grade that I, f I finally connected with a teacher and, um, 
Her name then was Mrs. Garrett. Her and I still talk. Um, She's terrific. And she really sort of inspired me to understand how I could like hone that better. And I ended up, I ended up sort of following her around. So the next year she was my, I took one of her creative writing classes again and she was the newspaper advisor. So I did work on the newspaper with her and then she moved schools. So I went from junior high to high school and she moved schools and she was teaching at the school I'd moved to. So I took her English class. Wow. And then that's wonderful. That's um, like such a gift. And then I took more of her creative writing classes as we went. And, Can I ask? So you, yeah. you said a minute ago, like before you had moved, you said something, you know, about creative writing. You said like, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about like how as a child you have this sense of like, this is what I want to do. I'm learning more having my own kids that that's a very rare thing. It is. Um, that's why I'm so curious. About well, it. no, like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's something like it actually causes sort of friction with my kids and I, where I'm like, well, how, how, what do you mean you cannot know what you want to do? And I, yeah, my wife has to remind me like, Hey, not everybody has that figured out as a kid. Like you do. You're the exception, not them. I don't, I've chosen not to have children, you know, a lot in part because I'm worried that I'll project like my, I'm not worried that I'll repeat what my parents did, but I am worried that like, I'll, I just won't be able to separate it enough or something. Yeah. And I think like that type of stuff is one thing, like just expecting a child to be the kind of child that I was like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think I like it, it, want so badly to be able to support a child that was like me that I would like, yeah, worry that I would f- try to force some there's of that. There's definitely a learning curve, in, which has been amazing. Actually. I think if there's, anything that's helped my writing as much as anything else, it's, it is having kids and learning to see the world through different eyes through them and figuring out ways to nurture them for what they want to do in the best way possible for what they need rather than what I might want. It's my favorite kind of creativity. Like the, the main topic that I feel like I find myself talking about lately and that I kind of am buzzing about in my brain is like this idea that we cultivate these creative skills in the arts Um, but like the place where we really need to use them is like in our lives, you know, finding like we, we work so hard to understand perspective and to like work on switching perspectives. And when we can do that, you know, in our marriages and with our families and in our neighborhoods and like in politics, like, I don't know, I feel like that that's just like a kind of a theory that I have lately that like maybe the purpose of the arts is to train those skills. I think that's part of it. I mean, Roger Ebert talked about how movies were these great machines for creating empathy. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, and that there's almost nothing like watching a movie to train you to see through the eyes of another person. Mm -hmm. And for artists, it, it feels very second nature that we can see those things. But part of our job as artists is to create those stories that, that generate that empathy in people who can't see that the world like like we do and and i think that's what's important about the arts that's what's important about entertainment i thought it was very funny during the pandemic you know there's this there's this like there was this sort of lack of interest in wanting to pay writers for things or oh we just need to tighten our belts and cut the arts but as soon as the pandemic happened and no one had anything to lean on yeah exactly like what else is there um there was uh I don't know, one of the, 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 the founding forebears of the country, I want to say it was, um, John Adams. Okay. I was like, maybe I'll, can, I can help, but finish your thing. And it maybe was, I'll know. I think it was John Adams where he said like, we're revolutionaries. So our kids can be, 
um, can be artists. Well, yeah, it was like, we're revolutionaries. We study war so our kids can study um, something else so their kids can study the arts. maybe the middle one is like commerce or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've heard this before. I don't know who it is either. John I, Adams feels right. I think it was John Adams. <laughs> we can check later. Um, I'll put it in the non-existent fact check. But that, like, we don't want <laughs> yeah. any, we don't want anyone in our society to be doing that. We want to build a society that supports the arts. Right. Um, you know, someone else said, uh, you know, I don't remember who it was. I want to say it was Eisenhower, but I doubt it. But it was like, you know, if we're cutting the arts, what are we fighting for? Right. Right. Totally. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, and sometimes I do feel burdened by this idea that, um, that the arts are the only way that we kind of know how to do empathy in our culture. Like I, I just, re I released, I'm, I'm in the middle of releasing my third album right now. It's called the hallowed wide and it's, it's a fantasy record, but it's a, the hallowed wide is a metaphor for like the sacred distance between individuals or like peoples. And I'm releasing kind of one single at a time. And the last one is kind of about this exact thing of like, that we kind of require creatives to bleed onto a page in order to like see, you know, people as people and have that empathy. And I don't know, I, I think a lot about like how we can, how we can get it without like kind of those individuals like needing to, you know, have pain in order for us well, to find that empathy. But I think if you go back through and, and, and look at, I want to say specifically like the work that, that comparative mythologists have done, like people like Joseph Campbell, where they go back and say like the common themes that we see in stories across all of time are us teaching each other things. Joseph Campbell's like right? the hero's journey guy. Yeah, right? the hero's yeah. journey guy. Like he went through and said like, I like he went through and cataloged all the folk folklore, the ancient folklore, the modern folklore across civilizations and across time. Yeah. And they all came up with the same sorts of things. And right. across all of them, these were stories that told us how to behave, how to do better, what to stay away from how to learn these lessons, how to unlock these things in ourselves and storytelling. You know, we, we were telling stories before we were writing anything, right? right? Like, and making music. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Um, music, dancing, storytelling. These are things that humans need on a very basic level, whether cooking. they need them or not. Yeah, no, like it's like <laughs> cooking in the arts. It's funny in Salt Lake city. Um, the first, you know, big major building they built it wasn't the temple it was the theater mm, i you know? didn't know that that's yeah. really interesting yeah it is it's funny isn't it like we all at some level know it's essential but like the capitalism of it all tells us like a different story but yeah i'm just i'm obsessed with it i was just saying to someone the other day like i sometimes feel myself getting tiresome just like talking about the arts but then i just think like what's yeah. What is there? Like, it's the thing that makes us human. It's yeah. the thing that separates us from, you know, other beautiful creatures. Although yeah. I do think bear is kind of artistic, just being, mm -hmm. he's too pretty for me to handle. Okay. We were talking about you feeling like you wanted mm -hmm. to be a writer as a child. Yeah. Like what, how did that happen? Um, I mean, like if I knew I'd, I'd bottle it and sell it, right. Sure. Cause we live in a capitalist society. Right. Um, I, it was just a drive. It was just a need to tell stories and a need to get better at it and a need to continue working on it. And that transition to film when I had a community around me that wanted to tell stories that way. Tell me more about this need to get better at it. Cause this is another thing I'm obsessed with. Like where does motivation come from? What do you think? Um, 
I think for me, and again, this comes back to the trauma. This is something I've worked with my therapist a lot at is that, um, there were elements of the abuse that I suffered that treated work as a coping mechanism Mm. and perfectionism or trying to be better at my task as a way to protect myself. I really, really get that. Um, so that there were, there were just those combinations of factors in my, in my, my child rearing, um, that really sort of contributed to that. Right. People ask me like, how are you so productive? And I'm like, it's "It's an unhealthy, yeah, it's trauma. I say the same thing like this house that we're in. I bought this house like on a musician's salary. Um, my husband was like still finishing his PhD when, when we bought the house and people will sometimes say things to me. Like, I mean, the most frequent thing people say is like, what does your husband do? And I'm like, fuck you. I bought this house. (laughs) Um, but also like, I feel the exact same way. Like all of this overachieving, like it's not a, it's not what you think. Like this is a trauma response. Like I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't have addiction issues, but I, but I work too much because I have like a deep sense of scarcity. And I think I also, and this is something that I'm still dealing with a lot as an adult. Um, like, I just, I feel like I must solve these problems that are kind of these unsolvable problems. Um, and, and lately, like one of the biggest things I feel like I'm working on it as, as an adult is trying to figure out how to take the maladaptive, you know, essence out of these things. Cause it like, you know, being productive is not a bad thing unless you feel like your entire self-worth is wrapped up in it. So it's, it's something I work on now. I think there's an element of that, but I've been able to adapt it so that me being productive is actually me taking on stories that are helping me interrogate things about myself in the world. Um, You know, I learn something about myself every book I write, every story I write. I learn something about the world every book or story I write or every screenplay. Um, And they are actually like the keys to my growth as a human being is being able to interrogate themes that I'm not sure about. I'm always very cautious of artists that are very like, here's the thing, here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and I don't, I don't understand that, that, that surety all the time. Yeah. I feel the same way. Um, yeah. So I, I named this podcast artifice, um, cause I think it's a great word and it implies this kind of, it implies like a, a misunderstanding And I think lots of times people assume that it's this thing you were just saying of like, I have an idea and therefore I will put this idea into a thing where I think for so much, so many of us, our relationship to our own work is, is the opposite. It's like, I'm, I'm dealing with something that I don't know how to name. I don't know what it is. I don't understand like how this is, you know, it's maybe not always internal. Sometimes it's maybe all, all the time it's external. I don't know. That's, that's what I find when I'm, when I'm writing books now, it's, it's very much like I have a sense of what I might be trying to interrogate and explore. Yeah. And as I get closer to the end of the book, I realize what I'm actually exploring and answering and what I'm actually trying to say. And then when I get to the end, I say, okay, now how can I make, how can I make that better? And so the revisions are really where it feels like I knew what I was doing from the beginning. Yeah. Hell yeah. I understand that. Like, in my bones. And uh, can I ask how old you are? Uh, 42. So I'm 34. So, um, I'm, I, I feel very much like I'm in the middle. Like, I feel like I, 
I feel like I'm just starting to, again, like investigate some of these kinds of ideas and, you know, maybe I'll call you up for a chat when I'm 42. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. No, I mean, I was probably close to, I was, I was not much older than you are now when I was writing a book that I didn't realize how challenging it would be. Mm. And it was to the point where like, like that book sent my ass to therapy. Like it was, I was writing a horror novel and I set it in Utah County in the nineties. And it was, it was partially about a kid who was undergoing abuse like I did. And I was taking scenes from my childhood and putting him in there Mm. going like, this is great horror material. And I was like, wait a second, my childhood fits in a horror novel. And that was, that was the thing that sent me to therapy for the first time. Yeah. Gosh, I, I, I feel, I feel this, you know, it's so Again, like one thing I've been thinking about recently, this, this new album is called The Hallowed Wide and it's a study on like, how do we like, how do we feel a, a, a kinship with others? And I, I've been realizing lately that I think a lot of times I use the podcast as like a little workshop. It's like mm-hmm. research, you know, like yeah. I'm thinking about like, um, and I started the podcast when I was working on my, my last album, which was called Masks. So I named the podcast Artifice, you know, it's like these themes are like, but I do find that it's such a, it's such a beautiful experience to like meet with someone who's a stranger and try to kind of like find a shared language. And sometimes it's really easy and sometimes it's really difficult. And isn't that, isn't that how it is? But a lot of, so many of the things that you're saying, I just feel like, gosh, I really like, (laughs) like approaching art from a very similar place and kind of Mm -hmm. thinking about it similarly. So, okay. If I'm not projecting, how did you like as a child, um, how, so what happened with the evolution of your creativity, you know, however kind of maladaptive some of these like motivations may have been, what happened in your teens? So in my teens, it was really finding a community that wanted, I mean, role-playing games actually played a huge part in it where we were telling collective stories as a group. And a number of the people in the group were as obsessed with movies and storytelling as I was. And because we had a group, it was very much like we could do this with movies. And so we were making short films all the time, right? Like one of us had a, like a VHS C, you know, which was the little VHS tape you'd have to put in the, the the bigger, well in the camera, but in the bigger tape, if you wanted to watch it, like it was, uh, archaic and we were just making movies all the time. And we, we, we were all largely like poor kids. Like if, if some of us were in the, in the middle class area that we were on the very bottom edge of it. And so we saw Hollywood and and storytelling as, you know, that same path, you know, where some kids would be like, well, sports are my way out. For us, it was storytelling. Interesting. And um, so we really, we really leaned into that. Um, We were all going to go to film school, uh, all of us. And I I don't think one of us went to like half a semester of film school. Um, My dad, part of the reason, I mean, aside from the abuse, I would have stopped talking to him anyway because of all of the abuse. But the thing that really broke the camel's back that made me realize that he didn't actually care about me was um, he had promised, like, listen, if you graduate high school, I will send you to college. And it didn't feel like there were any strings attached to that. But as soon as I graduated high school and picked out a college and said, this is the college I want to go to. I wanted to go to the Academy of Art College, to their film program in San Francisco. My friends and I, we took a road trip out there. We, wow. we got everything together. We applied, got in. And then he said, no, no, I'm not paying for that. Yeah. And he was telling his friends I didn't graduate high school. So it was like, 
I invited you to the ceremony. Like, what do you mean I didn't graduate? Yeah. Here's a picture of me and my with my diploma. Um, so the money that I ended up saving to go move to San Francisco and go to college, uh, a friend of mine and I, we'd written a screenplay. And it was all entirely set. We were, we were trying to think about the considerations of how we could make a movie cheaply. Mm. And we set the entire thing aboard one locked two-room spaceship with two actors. And so we took all the money that we saved not going to college, that we'd saved up for a fund to go to college, yeah. and built a spaceship in my wow. mom's backyard. Cool. Your parents were divorced? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, oh, I had another question. Oh, can you talk to me about like how you developed like your visual arts sensibilities? A lot of it at the time, as far as visual arts was, I mean, like back then it felt like the visual arts and like the tactile arts, like everything from like pottery and painting and everything were, were they feel, they felt more required back then in schools mm -hmm. than they do now. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe I'm just projecting. You just mean like kids were assigned to do like yeah. sculptures and stuff. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Like even I, even I think about this, like I was just talking to child maybe my nephew um recently about like oh you know how like when you have a book report and your teacher will give you like a list of like art things you can pick from and he kind of mm. looked at me like but I remember being like I'm gonna make a sculpture and do a diorama and yeah. write a poem you know well I feel like when I was in junior high and high school we had like required art classes every sure. semester yeah. and so like we would go to the art class and it, it was like art or music maybe I guess and I was right. like I am rubbish at music. I mean, I took, I think I had like one required music class in like seventh or eighth grade and that was it. And I was just like, no, 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 no that's not for me. Yeah. I love listening to music, but like producing it feels like some sort of magic that is unattainable to me. It's math. It's just, yeah. it's a language and you gotta I was know the syntax for, but and, yeah. Um, so then uh, that was part of it. But also like my, this group of friends and I, we would sit around and we would watch MTV or VH1 or whatever it was that we could find music videos on and we would watch music videos and study them and like debate about the visual qualities of them and then as we got older what kind of stuff were you talking about I got to um just stuff to like why they were using the why they how they were telling a story with the with the the visuals because often if you notice in in, in music videos from the 80s and 90s there's there's often a mismatch between the story that the director is telling and the story the song is telling. Right. And sometimes there's this really amazing synthesis that like makes it something better. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I think about like um, one that we always sort of went back to was AHA's Take On Me. Yeah. Right. Like it's such a great video that whirled into the, the cartoon world and sort of like the way the, the video was assembled. Um, others we talked about like. Beastie Boys Sabotage. Beastie Boys Sabotage felt so much like the home movies we were making, yeah, yeah. right? That it felt validating in those ways. Mm -hmm. And so like looking at how, and, and we didn't realize, we didn't know like Spike Jones as a personality at that point, right? Like mm -hmm. Spike Jones wasn't a film director. Spike Jones was like a skate film. Like yeah. he made skate movies. Right. Um, and seeing how those sensibilities could play out there, things like that, right? I feel like so much of it, like I teach at UVU now and I feel like I'm, I'm always trying to like 
emphasize this to my students, but so much of it is just paying attention. Like just teaching your eyes to see the cinematography or like, can you imagine like how this room is set up or like, Mm -hmm. you know, listening to a cartoon and really thinking about the voice acting, like picture this actor and like picture the actor in a room, like, making these choices or like, you know, thinking about Foley, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say like, so as we got older um, and DVDs started coming out, I loved the fact that DVD, like they were like, um, why would you replace your VHS for a DVD? I mean, like the quality, if you go back and look at it between DVD and VHS nowadays, it's not actually that much of a leap the way you'd think of like VHS to Blu-ray or high def or whatever. So they made the selling point of them as they were widescreen. So you could see the cinematographer's intention and they had audio commentaries. And so we would just devour audio commentaries and we would sit there and learn from writers and directors and cinematographers and got a film school that way in a way that we, we didn't have Mm -hmm. access to before. And um, so that was definitely that drove our conversations about music videos and things like that. But we were also going to the movies all the time. Like it's research. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there were, we, we all got jobs at a movie theater, right? Yeah. Like I spent about 10 years working in movie theaters from a teenager, just slinging popcorn and watching all the free movies right. I could to managing a movie theater and being a projectionist and working with the yeah. film um, until, until the theaters I was working at just sort of, kept closing. Um, but that was, that was like the day job at the time. It was like, I was that close to the movies and understanding that there's a literal intention in everything and that nothing in a movie is a mistake or not. I mean, there there can be mistakes in movies, but like everything, everything that you see in the frame is intentional Intentional. for one reason or another. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could argue about like at some point things are subjective, but everything's intentional. Yeah. 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 It's one of my favorite things like, you know, cause I interview artists from all different mediums and I love to ask people like, what do you like see? Like, how do you see it? Like, what are the things that you're seeing that like, I don't know how to see, or like other people don't know how to see. And again, it's just like, it's just another, it's just another language for like empathy for perspective. I love it. Okay. Tell me this. This is something I've been thinking about so much lately. Do you like, okay. First, do you feel like a visual artist? I feel like I can fake it as a visual artist. I feel like my, um, my strength when I'm doing film stuff is in bringing in the right visual artist to help me get across the story I want to tell. Yeah. I'm very much a writer director. I can fake it with a camera when I need to. I know which, you know, I know which way to point it yeah. and to get something reasonable, but I know that they know more than I do in making it sing. Yeah. Um, Sounds like you have spent a lot of time like thinking like a visual artist. Is that right? I or? think I, I definitely like when I'm writing one of the struggles that I work with in prose is that I, I, I trained as a screenwriter initially. So everything is very visual. And so it's about communicating a visual blueprint. Yeah. Um, and having to break some of those habits to write novels. I I think it's something that people who write novels or screenplays, they should try doing the other and just sort of trying those on. I don't think anybody did that better than like William Goldman, right? He's the guy who wrote the book, uh, the book and the film adaptation of princess bride. Okay. Oh Um, yeah. 
like he's just amazing. And some of his original stuff that's like movie only, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, is just this it, it's so well designed for that idea of of film and visual storytelling. And I don't know, I I don't know. I I've just, been really interested lately in like these blurry lines between like writing visual art. Like I don't know. I think I I think just because of conversations I have with my guests, like you know, um, I interviewed this great guy, Doug Wagner, his episode will have, it's not out yet, but it will be out before this conversation is out. And he is a comic book writer, but he doesn't draw. Like he writes the comic books and he tells his partner, like, you know, which words should be in each frame. And he has to think really visually, like in order to write that, it just like kind of got me thinking about like, the ways in which so much of what those of us who would maybe call ourselves writers or those of us who call ourselves visual artists, like if a painter is thinking about a story, like, are they a writer? You know, I don't know. Yeah, it's no, just I like think something I'm into. I kind of prefer the term storyteller to writer, if that yeah. makes sense. I mean, I do do comics too. And so much of that is being able to write down just enough to spark the artist to give you something maybe better than you would have expected. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's, and that's what you want to do on a film set. That's what you want to do with anything collaborative. Yeah. You want to bring to the table as much as you possibly can to inspire everybody else to bring everything they can to right. the table, because there's a reason it takes, you know, hundreds of people to, to make a movie is because no one person is the best at all right. of those things. Right, right, right. Oh, I like it so much. Just thinking about like, what is the thing that our brains are doing? Like, are our brains doing something visual? Are our brains doing something with language? And I, I like, I agree with you. Like storytelling is flexible in a way that's kind of unique, but I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's interesting to think about the way that like language and visual media, like, are they inter, are they like, um, well, I think, can you separate them? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think you can. I think, um, I think music fits in there too. I totally. mean, like if you go through and examine, like say the work of John Williams, right? Like his music is essentially narrations of the story, exactly. right? Like you can it's listen to it. It's writing too. Totally. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's just, I mean, you can see where it. he was telling the story through the music in ways that is when you go back and reverse engineer it and look at the literal intention of the themes he was using when and why, or which instruments he was doing it with, or why it changed from this instrument to that instrument. Yeah. Um, it's, it's astonishing the level of complicated storytelling that he's doing. Um, I love it. I'm so, I'm so excited by it. Even like, I'm like a broken record about this. I'm probably talking about it way too much, but even just like, you know, if you, if you, if you look at like a, if you watch a nature documentary, the storytelling that's happening in a nature documentary also blows my mind. Like how much footage had there had, do we had to have had, um, in order to like weave a story like about these, you know, lion cubs or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I don't know. We can't help it. Like we're just, we're telling stories everywhere. And I don't know. I'm really, Uh, that's just, that's just how we understand things. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So, um, so when you were in high school, like where did, was there ever a time where you thought you might be a novelist and not a filmmaker? No, I think in high school I was very much like this novelist stuff is cool, but maybe that might be a little too insurmountable. And I have this group of supportive people, which is something that I didn't feel like I had at home. So it was like very much that sort of found family thing. And some of them, like one of them, um, 
one of the guys uh, who was my writing partner for a long time and we were making movies together, he's the one who built the spaceship with me. We still work together. Mm -hmm. Like we've been, uh, you know, I have a day job still, unfortunately, that I'm desperately hoping to get out of to just work on art full time. And he and I still, uh, we still work together. We share an office. We've been Mm -hmm. sharing an office essentially since we were like 13. Gosh, I love it. What did it, how was it for your identity and maybe even the two of you together as kind of partners? Like did your peers, did your teachers like know that you were thinking of yourselves as like professionals and you were taking these things seriously? And like, how did that our guidance counselors didn't take it very seriously. Like they were very much like maybe pick something reasonable, maybe pick something more attainable. Um, we had, I made the mistake of taking a creative writing class from a different teacher. And I ended up spending half of every class period in, in school suspension because she didn't like the sorts of stories that I was telling. Please tell me more about that. Oh, it was the worst. So, I mean, I was writing, you were like, Mrs. Garrett, where well, are you? Well, no, it you? wasn't. It, yeah, exactly. No. It was exactly that. <laughs> yeah. um, this woman, this woman Why thought that the- Why have you abandoned me? <laughs> well, I just signed up for a whole I'm year of creative kidding. writing and I didn't yeah. realize that I would get this really great experience the first semester right. and then the second semester it would be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the stuff I was writing at that time, like I didn't quite understand- the shape of a short story, if that makes okay, sense. Like yeah, we were please. just writing short stuff. And so the stuff I was writing was based on all the role-playing games we were, we were playing. Okay. So whether that was like, we were playing lots of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we were playing a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons and things yeah. like that. So all of my stories were reflected in, were reflecting the stories that we were telling each other around the table. Right. And she just did not like it. They were too violent for her. She didn't like the content. She didn't like the content. She didn't like the form either. She did not like short stories per se. She wanted short personal narratives and essays. Oh, I see. She didn't want you to tell stories. No. I mean, she wanted you to tell stories. I'll never forget, like, for her... The, 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 the example that she always seemed to ga- give of like the best story she ever told was this like three page narrative about how one time she was in a public bathroom and the toilet started overflowing and she leapt up and was holding the back of the door. And she was just like these, these just really important moments, these slices of life. This is what right, good writing is about. And it was like, she wanted like a little vignette or yeah, something. It was, yeah. It was, it was not. It was not what I wanted. Talk to me about like, because one thing that I'm fascinated by is like these stories of kind of resilience, especially for children and teens to have the kind of, I don't know, gumption to like disagree with an authority figure. It was, I definitely got in some trouble with that from her specifically, because when she came in, she had at one point called my, my mother and said like, do you know the stuff he's writing? And she, and my mom, to her credit, was like, he's 14 years old and he's writing about his role-playing experiences. It's fine. It sounds creative. It's a creative writing class. Like, let him write whatever he wants. And so when she realized she wasn't getting the support from the parents that she wanted, she had this thing where she kind of stood up in front of the class and said, we're not going to be writing anything that has violent content, nothing that has sexual content. Because, I mean, some of the other girls were writing, like, romance stories and she yeah. was like struggling with that with some of the other kids so she's just like we're just doing these personal narratives and as she's giving the speech i'm writing these little one-page flash fictions that are literally as violent and gory as i like this is all pre-columbine right like this is i was writing the sort of stories that would get me like locked up in today's 
school yeah. climate, but we were passing them around the class. Uh, as she's giving this speech about what writing is and isn't and what we're not going to be doing I hate in class that so anymore. So much. It sounds like she shouldn't have been teaching creative writing. I agree. <laughs> I agree. How did you like know that though? Because it sounds like you knew that, but like how did you know? Um this woman who's being paid to teach creative writing has been vetted in some way. Like, where does that kind of gut instinct come from? I think part of it came from the experience I had the previous semester with, with Mrs. Sure. Garrett, right? Like part of it was like, I was, I had been in a very nurturing, creative environment and I knew what that felt like. And this felt repressive. Um, and, and I was struggling against the dominant culture generally anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, coming in from California, I had different ideas about what culture was supposed to be and getting dropped in the middle of Orem. Yeah. Um, it didn't feel like the friendliest place. Not being mm. a member of the predominant religion made it feel twice as unfriendly. Sure. And this felt like an extension of that unwelcomeness that I had found yeah. from everywhere else. So it was very it was very easy for me to buck that authority. Sure. How in general did you deal did you um I mean I guess we've already kind of talked about it, but did you maintain resilience through all of these challenges? Like how did you maintain creative resilience? Um Again, it was the trauma. It was a coping mechanism for the trauma. Like the worse things got in at home, the more I poured myself into this stuff. Yeah. Um, you because just had like a focus there. Yeah. It was very easy to hyper-focus on this and not have to think about that. Yeah. I get that. I get that. Um, did you also feel like in, cause again, maybe I'm like, maybe I'm projecting now cause this is kind of how <laughs> it was to me as a teen, but did you feel like you got to explore things in the art that like you couldn't quite explore in your life? Like, you know, did you feel like you could like test things out in your writing? Yeah, I think so. There was definitely like, and I think this came out in the role playing too, like okay. playing the, the role playing games. It was like, I could take on a persona that wasn't mine and try that out. I could take on characters that weren't mine and try that out. And then I could take those characters and pluck them into stories and explore things from a, a direction that I couldn't. Like I could write characters with safe, loving parents, right? Like I could write, which felt as much as like epic fantasy to me, right? Like yeah. um, I could, um, part of it too, like I was writing fan fiction at the time. Like the first no, the second novel I tried to, the first novel I tried to write was like in like third grade. And I oh. wish I still had those pages, but the second novel I tried to write was in junior high and it was just this star Wars fan fiction. Mm -hmm. And I wish I had those pages too, but, um, it was just a way for me to play with the, the pieces, right? Like to play with, with these pieces and see right. how I could take, stories that other people had created in that way and see how I could make them tick. Yeah, let it be play. So mm -hmm. interesting. Is there anything else you want to say about like the kind of creative or artistic lessons that you were like learning in your teens? Um, I think so much of it is just like the thing that I've tried to instill in my kids is don't squander that time yeah. because I didn't realize how much I rely now on all of the free time I had then to just soak in all of the reading and, and, and movie watching that I wanted to do. Yeah. Right. Like it's huge. It's you're a sponge, right? Like your brain is still forming and you're taking in all of this input and what input you take in at that age, I feel like really kind of 
relates to what you're still able to rely on older. And so that creative lesson that I kind of picked up from there was that like the more I watched stories, the more I could understand how they were made and created and why they were making the choices that they were making, the more I could apply those choices to myself and my own work. Amen. Um, And so, and so like, it's something I like struggle. My kids aren't the biggest readers. Um, it never really caught them as a bug the way it did me. But like my son is super into movies and we will, we will share that. And I'm just like astonished at the rate at which he's able to just chew through movies and TV shows. And I'm like, you know, don't be so, don't be so eager to like move out because as soon as you're working full time to support yourself, a lot of that free time is going to go away. And I would rather have you around and like doing this yeah. This this learning process as long as you can handle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I see this a lot too and I think it's like a it sounds like it was intuitive to you to like just soak things up and it certainly was to me too. I feel like curiosity is just like part and parcel to my like entire yeah. identity. Um and I so frequently like my my college students will ask me some question that I'm just like have you listened to music? Like, yeah. do you, like what, what's going on? Like, why aren't you paying attention? Like you should, you should know some of these things just anecdotally. It's, it's crazy, but yeah, you'd, you'd think that would be something that everyone who's interested in the arts would have in common, but it seems the, like it's, it's no, there's not. definitely, I have that experience too with students. I teach, um, for writer's digest and I teach up at the university of Utah and I'll have students say things where I'm just like, I've come to understand that it comes from that place of them not being as curious as we are, where it's things that like, I would go, huh, I wonder about that. Why did that happen? Why was that the way it is? And then we'll go research it relentlessly until I find an answer. Yeah. And I'll say something in class and, and you can realize by the way they frame their question that they've literally never been curious about it. Right. Um, and, and I think that's, there's definitely folks like, um, in the writing community too, where they will, they will come and say like, Hey, what can I do better about my writing? And it's just like, you can tell on the page, the writing isn't curious. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about this yesterday. So my like process with this podcast is like, I do the interviews then like several months later, usually I re-listen to them and I take notes and then I do my editing. And then like at the end of each month, I write like an essay. I just give myself this homework, (laughs) write an essay about like the themes that have come up. So I was re-listening to the episode that's going to come out like next week. And I had been interviewing this painter and he said like, I just... I, I hate it when there's, there's work that has no questions in it. And I just thought like, I've never heard that like put in such a succinct way, but I really feel that way too. Like if there's not a, if there's not a question in it, I'm so bored, (laughs) like spark my curiosity somehow, you know, not that the question needs to be explicit, but there needs to be room. I think that's part of storytelling. I think people like being teased with questions because they want to figure the answers out. Right. And whether you're giving them the complete answer at the end of the narrative or whether you are um, dangling some of those questions, your narrative tension is predicated almost specifically on the questions the audience or the yes. reader is, is, is answering. And I think painters are really great at that because yeah. 
my favorite yeah no my favorite my favorite paintings are ones where where they're telling a story in an image they say a picture is worth a thousand words and a thousand words is a lot of real estate and i love being able to sit there i love going to museums and seeing these 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 paintings and just trying to imagine what the story is and why the light is the way it is and why those things are but that comes down to that curiosity too and that's something that like you can teach writing skills. You can teach the bare bones of writing, but I don't think I can teach anybody to be curious You're that way. You're saying all the things that I love. Yeah, <laughs> I feel the same way. And I I think about this question so much. Like, does it just take the right spark to like get someone to be curious or do they need to just like hear someone else asking questions or being like, oh, you know, in order to be like, huh, I've never thought about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it's something I really lament in music these days. Um, th- I was talking about this in that episode for the listener. It's the Andrew Alba episode. So you can go back and listen, but, um, we were talking about how music lots of times in the, in the current day and age, popular music anyway, tends to be like really on the nose. Like there aren't a lot of questions left. It's like really spelled out. And it's something that, you know, in my writing, um, you know, I'll frequently like send writing into like blogs or playlists. And the feedback that I get is often like, you need to explain this better. And then I'm just like, this isn't a lack of craft. Like, I don't want to explain it. Like I want the listener to be able to like project their own you know, stories onto it or their own questions. And I don't know. I just, I feel frustrated about the lack of curiosity in like popular music. I think think that's why some of the music, most of the music I gravitate to is, is not as popular. Maybe. I don't know. Like, I mean, same the two songwriters that like, I just go daffy for and love listening to just, just basking in their music is Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits and their storytelling is opaque like they're very clearly telling stories but they're doing it in such lovely metaphor and poetry that it's it's dense and sometimes impenetrable but there's nothing like listening to it over and over and over again until realization clicks and all of a sudden you're weeping because you understand what they were saying or what that story was behind it. I, that's my favorite sort of Me too. music to I want listen to. to be, I want there to be breadcrumbs. I want a puzzle to solve. Like yeah. I want things to be like cryptic in just the right way where there are like little, little clues for me. And yeah, I want to like, I want to have a whole theory about it. Yeah. It's my favorite thing. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Bear's having a dream. Yeah. He's back in his like racing days. He's just kicking around down here. Oh my gosh, I'm so into it. Okay, so what happened in your 20s? I'd love to know like what kind of things you were doing in the arts and also like what kind of like internal development was going on. So in my 20s, um, I had a kid, two kids. Um, How many kids do you have? Three. I've got three. So um, I had a couple kids as we were finishing up. No, I think we finished the movie, The Spaceship. We built in the backyard. We filmed that movie. We did some film festivals with it. Um, and we were working on films all over the place. So there's all kinds of local films where, where he, my, my, the team that we'd put together to make the movie, we were working on all kinds of local movies, all of the, um, like that was right at the dawn of sort of like what they'd call like Mormon cinema. Like we were working on all those movies. Um, not, I mean that, that's in that vein. Right. But we were working on stuff like singles ward. 
those were guys we knew like give me a, um, give me a thing. the best two years. Okay, okay. I was the assistant director. Okay, on that. cool, cool. Um, and you're not you've never been LDS, is that no, right? No, no, no. Yeah. What was that like? Um it was a job and I learned a lot on that wow. production, right? Like so they filmed that they filmed all the exteriors out of the country and they filmed all the interiors uh just actually not that far away from here. Wow. Um uh in Lehigh actually. Wow. Um and uh so my job is first assistant directors. Unfortunately, I couldn't go to the, the Amsterdam shoot, but just to make sure everything ran smoothly and everybody was on set the way they were supposed to and figure out how to work out a schedule and whatnot, uh, make sure everybody had their, their, their sides daily and the film got to the processor on time and everything. And like, it was a really great, um, learning experience. I did other stuff. Like there was a movie I, I worked on called Handcart, and Jared Hess was the, um, the second assistant cameraman or the, the assistant cameraman, Jared and Jerusha, Jerusha Hess. And we sort of gravitated toward Jared, me and the other ADs, like me and my little film cadre were all the, the assistant directors. Um, and it was funny on that shoot, the first AC was Mike Lookinland, who was Bobby Brady. Okay. Okay. Um, on the Brady bunch. Yeah. Um, I was following. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but so like, it was Jared before Napoleon Dynamite. And like, I think we were all like, just, we would spend our lunch hours talking about films we really wanted to be working on Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And, um, did you feel welcomed by the film community? Oh yeah. No, I, I I think absolutely. Um, and by the writer community, is that common? Like, is that common for people to feel like they can have a, like a, like be welcomed in both places? Um, I, it took me a long time. It took me a lot longer to earn the welcoming of the writing community than yeah. the film community. Do you like why? Um, I think part of it is the film community is that like they are inherently more welcoming because it needs more bodies to happen. Sure. And I think there's a tendency of writers to to view other writers. I don't necessarily feel this way, but there are definitely writers who feel like other writers are competition as though the table's oh, only gosh. a certain size. I mean, I think in ge- I think we get feeling like this within our mediums and also across mediums. Like there's a there's a scarcity mindset for sure that there's only enough, you know, bandwidth or attention span in the general public for, you know, TV consumption, for film consumption, for, you know, music consumption and I mean, I just couldn't disagree with that idea more. I, I also find that film people like I really like interviewing people who work in film and I think it's because it isn't a medium. It's like, yeah. it's like it's 17 mediums. Yeah, no, I mean, you've got writers, you've got sculptors, you've got fashion designers, you right. have a set design. Yeah. Colorists like voice acting. I mean, every single thing. And I think you can't, even if you're not a curious person, if you're in that kind of an environment, you're going to, you're going to be presented with information you never would have thought to think about. Yeah. Um, which I think just inherently like lends itself to a bit more open-mindedness. So, um, I was working on these movies and I opened a comic book store. Wow. Um, so I owned a comic book store in Orem for a while and we were using that as our base of operations to like make films. Okay. So like we had, I had four rooms in the comic book store. I had the front room where the store was. I had a back office where we kept all of our film crap. Yeah. And then we had like sort of a movie theater cause we would do screenings and, and, cool. and whatnot. And then the front room was a different business I was subleasing with. And, um, so we were using that as our base of operations and we had conceived, we were way too early for Kickstarter, right? We, mm. we, we decided we wanted to come up with like 
an investor video for this movie we wanted to do. And we shot about 12 minutes of the movie. Um, and it was really ambitious and it was really big. And we got this package together. We put together a proposal, a budget and everything. Mm -hmm. And then we realized we didn't actually know any rich people. And if we would have been seven or eight years later, Kickstarter would have been a thing and we'd have been able to, to make that movie, but we weren't. Um, but we took this left turn into documentary. Cool. Um, in 2004 at the 2004 Sundance film festival, I had a friend who he had been working on screenplays with us and he had made a movie. Um, this movie was ridiculous. It was called Abby Singer. Like he took off and made this movie called Abby Singer and it was very, um, ad libbed. Okay. And and the conceit was that the main character, he decided that the only way he'd be able to get notice in Hollywood as a director was to have stars in his movies. So his director, or his, as the director, his actor, he would go put them in situations using subterfuge or various other things that would put them in contact with A-list celebrities. They would sort of get in on the gag and act the scenes out with the character. Like the, the, the conceit was that he was like um, a casting director. And so like Sundance is in our backyard. And so this casting director would go interact with these people. And like, he got some really cool stuff in it, right? Like he got Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert gave him three different takes of telling this guy something meaningful and reciting the parasol monologue from Citizen Kane. Brad Pitt was in it. Jake Gyllenhaal was in it. Um, Robert Redford was in it. Like they got a whole bunch of actors to get like get in on it. Um, and then he thought he was going to play in the Sundance Film Festival, but he'd played in another film festival and he won a different film festival elsewhere in the country. But in order to get into Sundance, you need to um, be a premiere, right? Okay. So okay. he was disqualified sure. for being in Sundance. I and I think Sundance was also uncomfortable with the film because a lot of the places where he was approaching celebrities with camera was at Sundance events and right. things. And so he didn't get in and he was sort of upset by that. And he knew that we still lived here. So he was like, can you, can you all help me promote the movie? We'll set up another screening in tandem, like with Sundance around Sundance and we will set up a screening. Yeah. Off Sundance. Yeah. Well, this was just (laughs) after they started making, like when I had made that movie about the, um, in the spaceship, we played at the No Dance Film Festival, right? Okay. There was so many different dance festivals. There was like No Dance, I didn't know and that. Yeah. there was Slam Dance, and whatever. But Park City sort of made these laws that you couldn't project movies there unless you had like an office year round mm-hmm. in Park City or whatever. And so that's mm-hmm. why it's only Sundance and Slam Dance now. And then by the time 2004 rolled around, you couldn't put up posters or handbills or hand out flyers, mm-hmm. which was something that happened at Sundance before then. Like okay. it was common for people to show up and promote their movies, even if they weren't in the festival. So Park City really designed their, their laws, their, their flyering laws mm-hmm. around keeping people from doing that. Wow. So we had this really interesting conundrum. How do we, how do we promote this film screening for our friend? And, and so we, um, we took the spirit of the movie and, and sort of went that way. So we decided Gorilla promotion, guerrilla promotion. We disguised (laughs) ourselves as a comedy central camera team and we created a show called celebrity boner fest and, uh, basically had our host, 
who was part of a skate crew. Like we, we brought all these kids that were just making skate videos wow. all the time and they became our crew for this. And we sort of promoted the movie really successfully That's that way awesome. with this guerrilla marketing campaign. This was the documentary. So we made a documentary okay. about all of this cool. as we were going. And then we realized we couldn't distribute it because we made the mistake of not getting releases from anybody in the first mm, place. Yeah. Um, and so we cut it, and it's great. It's on YouTube. Um, I can send you a link if you Please want to watch do. it. But yeah, it was, I'll put it in the show notes too. It was uh, it was ridiculous, and so that was like our first foray into like trying to make a documentary, but we couldn't distribute it, and it it kind of didn't work. But later that year, so in January, we do this. We're making this movie. We're working on this other film that we want to get promoted or that we want to get financed, but it doesn't work. Um, at UVU, back then it was UVSC, right. Michael Moore, the documentary filmmaker, is invited to speak in the heat of the 2004 election. Okay. And I don't know if Gosh. you remember how uh, it, 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 I mean, it came to, there were death threats, there were I bribery was attempts. I in 2004, so... Yeah. Um, well, there's a much. movie about it. There's okay. a movie. There's a whole movie about it. Um, I was 16 and I was like a very curious 16 year old living in like a deeply Mormon household. Yeah. In Mesa, Arizona. Um, so when they announced that he was coming, we were like, all hell's going to break loose. We should go down there and start filming. So we started rolling cameras around all of this. And, and like when Sean oh Hannity got involved, like we got all of that on camera. So we put together a really complete documentary about and you got the releases uh, and we got releases from everybody. <laughs> you especially, never know what you're in the middle of. Yeah. Um, so I've we actually got releases well from the guy who was like the chief antagonist of everything. Okay. Right. Like he was the guy who was bribing, trying to bribe the school into canceling it. Um, it was a lot of free speech issues. Right. And we tried to play, it was, it was, uh, a documentary that we played entirely cinema verite. Everyone who was in the documentary gets to explain things in their own words. There are no hosts or commentators or anything. We just let the events unfold chronologically with everybody in their own words. Cool. And uh, we ended up getting uh, distribution with it. The disinformation company, which I don't think they distribute films anymore, but they had distributed at that time, like the Walmart documentary okay. or like things like that. They're a book publisher primarily now, I think. And they'd done like the disinformation TV show and things like okay. that. And um, we did like a 36 college tour with it. And wow. then we did we did film festivals with it. So I started going to film festivals all over the country as like the assistant director uh, and producer. Um, and that worked really well. We went all over the, the, the world actually with it. It played at the Gothenburg film festival in Sweden. It played at Vancouver. Oh, it did a lot of festivals. In your 20s. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then the distributor said like, Hey, we, um, we're only buying your, um, we're only buying the rights for the DVD release, the home video release and the streaming release and everything. We didn't know what streaming was at that time really. Sure. Um, and it comes out on X date, like in, like, I, I want to say it was like November 2005 or something. Okay. Um, but if you want to book it in theaters, you guys can book it in theaters. And so wow. we took that on and like, we personally booked like another 25 city, um, like screening. Release, so we, yeah. we made, we made something like $20,000 at the box office, oh. um, projecting only with the DVDs of the movie. Um, and it was really terrific. And then that got us into another documentary. Um, we had an investor, um, finance us for, uh, for a quarter of a million dollars to write and produce 
a documentary about the um, the politics of the food system yeah. in in the country. And we did that again, got a distributor, did festivals, did really well with that. And we thought we were kind of going up and then the economy tanked in like mm-hmm. 2007, you 2008. About this um, and so I ended my 20s getting a day job. Like around that time, it was like, I need to focus on my own writing while we try to get some film projects, but right. nobody's paying for anything. Right. Freelance is drying up. So I got a day job doing communications work for uh, in, in, in the government sector. Um, and I still sort of do that in the background on top of all my creative work. Are you um, able to make that feel creative? Ever? Oh yeah. No, I do. Please I, tell me more about that. So, I mean, a lot of it is really just communicating to people why they should care about yeah. what decisions the government is making. Have um, you always been interested in, in that? So there was a time when I was in high school where I was like, I don't know if I should go into politics or yeah. storytelling. Cool. And I, very They're kind much, of one and the same. Yeah. So I very much kind of took that left turn, that that much less lucrative left turn into the arts. And um, when we started doing political documentaries like This Divided State or Killer at Large, yeah. it was like, this feels like this this bridge between the two. Right. And sort of transforming that job for the city into something where we could do that yeah. with. Um, was, I love that. Was really helpful. And I mean, like we've been doing, um, as we record this, we, because it was me and my, my co-writer who got this job with me, Wow. um, we're like, we need to do something to keep ourselves sane. And so we've been producing for the last eight or 10 years, these, these history documentaries that are wow. about a minute and a half long. And we're just about to release our 200th <gasps> one. What? Yeah. So we've been That's finding awesome. ways to be creative on the clock in that way too. Tell me this, like when you're, when you're finding ways to be creative on the clock, does that feel subversive to you? Does it feel chaotic? Does it feel fun? Like what, it, what is it? It used to feel subversive. Like, man, I'm convincing them to pay me for this, but now it's become such an integral part to the communication strategy of the, wow. the, the outfit I work for that yeah. it's become like vital. Does this feel like part of your, like, what's the word? Like your kind of manifesto as a person, like to find, to kind of create the environment you want to be in. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Can you tell me more about that? It really came from a quote. It's as much the same as us deciding to pretend to be a Comedy Central team as me figuring out the freelance and and prose writing career that I got, but that it was, um, Jelly Biafra said, uh, don't hate the media, be the media. Yeah. And so it was like, instead of getting frustrated about what I wasn't seeing or what people weren't paying me for, I was just going to create the things I wanted to yeah. see. Couldn't agree more. I also feel like don't hate the medium, you know, or something yeah. like, it's something I've been thinking about so much lately. Like what even is medium? It's related to this like writer, like all art is writing and all art is visual or something. Like yeah. I'm, not, I'm not, I'm at the beginning of this idea maybe, but also that just like, I think just in general, like medium is not as clearly defined as we think. And ultimately like our lives are creative and like your life is your medium and, you know, like finding a way to make each aspect of your life, like fit with your kind of like personal mission statement, you yeah. know, it's like, what's more of like an art project than that? I love it. I definitely think, you know, art for art's sake is important. 
Yeah. Right. Like, like it teaches us to be better people. It teaches us to get more in tune with ourselves, with the world around us. And then I just, I just think it's, it's a very noble calling in a way that maybe a capitalist society doesn't uh, respect as well as it should. I want to make everything art. I feel like that's like, that's what I want. Like I want to think, I want to force the least artful things to feel artful. Yeah. Like, no, the guy I worked with, um, that I still work with, that we do these things together and we built that spaceship together when we were working. What's his name? You should Elias. tell me. It was, okay. It's Elias. So w- when Elias was, uh, when we were building the spaceship, he'd already had a kid. And so he was supporting them and working on our art at the same time. And he was working as a milkman. And I would go to his work uh, working in the freezer, like he would, he would be in the, 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 the cold storage dividing all of the, the milk for the other milkmen to take on deliveries. And even these small acts of rebellion that he would take where he would color code everything, like all of the, like he would make sure that all of the different types of milk were across like, uh, a color palette, right? Like yeah. in a, in a way that he made sense to him as an artist. He's a much more so, visual artist than so I am. So into it. So like he would he would like those small acts of of making it creative are are just as impactful as us getting together and saying like screw it, like we're documentary filmmakers. Let's make some documentaries on top of gosh, you know. I couldn't agree more. Like, what is this if not everything? Like, yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm so, like, buzzy lately about just, like, blow it all up. Like, these things don't need to have clear edges. Like, and I want to take it as my own personal challenge to take the least creative thing and make it feel rebellious or victorious or, you know, something more. Something Yeah, just to shape the world around you a little bit. Shape your job around you a little bit that respects that creativity. Yes, and I think about this, I take it really seriously, like with my students and also I've run like a wedding band. It's like my main, it's my day job. Like it's mm-hmm. my main kind of like source of income. Um, and I'm, I hire a lot of other musicians and I work with wedding planners and brides. And I just like, I, I try, I'm not perfect at it, but I try really hard to think like, how can I be rebellious in these spaces? Like, how can I take these spaces that we expect to feel some way and make them feel a different way? And like, you know, in these small ways, like affect the culture. And I don't know. I just feel like it's so boring to like, just think about like the one, yeah. like the one no, channel. It's, I think, I think, uh, I think in heart, I think that's inherent in art sometimes, especially if you look through like, especially in music with the history of like, um, anti-authoritarianism yeah. through punk or, or whatever, like music has always been. in jazz studies. So I'm like, so yeah, no, you, you've got all of ethos, this. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's definitely, or I mean, even going back, I mean, tracing that through jazz and like the small acts of rebellion that enslaved folks would be using yeah. through their music as they were telling each other stories that yeah. maybe they shouldn't have been telling each other through those, through those things. And other bits of art too. There's some really great stories about, um, women and, and, and women, applying folk art to be subversive, right? Like, I don't know if you've heard about like the, those women that would use like quilts and they're Mm. quilting to help aid like the underground railroad by sending messages through how they were quilting, things like that. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And just, I don't know. I, I try to take it as like my own personal kind of ethos to like, if something strikes me as like, I don't get that. Or like that, you know, instead of thinking like, well, that's not for me. Like I, 
let me fill in the subtext of like what I'm thinking instead of I'm realizing as it's coming out, it's probably not clear, but like, you know, as we talk about these like eras of art that are, that are revolutionary, um, it's so interesting. Like we see it time and time again, that like the people who are groundbreaking in one generation are so resistant to the groundbreaking of the next generation. Yeah. I mean, we it's, you've it got so much, um, you know, uh, Johnny Rotten is like a perfect example of that, where he was like, burn it all down, censorship's the worst, you know, anarchy in the UK with the Sex Pistols, and now he's just sort of like a Boris Johnson stooge. Yeah, and I try, I try really hard to think about, like, any idea that doesn't resonate with me. Like, I mean, there are caveats, I think. Like, racism is just bad, you yeah. know? But, um, but like, it generally, I try to feel like if, if an idea doesn't resonate with me or I don't get it, I try to th- make myself get it. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, a, that's a question. It's, it's not the end of something. It's the beginning of something. Yeah. Um, what other, like, what topics are you buzzing about lately? Like, what's, what's going on in your brain? Um, I, I've just got, like, the, the chief... Uh, the chief problem I'm trying to grapple with right now is being able to try to f- support myself as a full-time artist without needing the day job. Yeah. And so part of it is taking on probably more freelance work than I should. And part of it is taking on more creative work in like licensed universes. So like my last book mm. that just came out was in the Battletech universe, yeah. which is um, related to like the MechWarrior video games. It's, it's, I remember those. Yeah. So it's, it's in that universe. And so it's like, it's stuff there that's helping me build, um, you know, build an audience for me as a storyteller um, and finding ways for me to be subversive and say things that I think are important for art and bring it to an audience that wouldn't necessarily get it. So um, I've got some projects in there that I've got sort of buzzing around in my head, but like the thing that I kind of think inherently like if we want better arts in this in this country specifically we just need to be divorcing healthcare from profit yeah and healthcare from employer based healthcare yeah. right like the chief reason that I have been stuck in a day job for so long is that I need healthcare for my kids. Yeah. And there's no way to get that affordably without it being tied to an employer for a long period of time to make sure that that happens. And if we want to make scientific advances, if we want to make advances in our art, if we want to make people feel comfortable to do these sorts of things, we need to be making sure that they can make a living without being tied to the shackles of capitalism. Amen. And I know, like, I mean, I think my audience is reliably art people. But, but, you know, if I was talking to people who aren't artists, I know how these things sound. Like, you know, my dad, I, this is, this is the, this is the place where I, I'm really currently, because I've only been no contact with my dad for two years. So it's really pretty fresh and it, it still holds like quite a bit of grief. In my childhood, my mother was definitely the primary like source of pain. And it's only been in the last, um, couple of years, she's been gone four years and it, I kind of have realized like how much my dad was like a part of it as well. Yeah. Anyway, um, my dad is wealthy and he is very non, non-artistic. Like he's, it's weird cause he's pretty creative, but he's not artful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know how these kinds of things would hit him and would hit kind of 
my family culture. And it's very like, yeah, well, of course you're going to be talking about how capitalism is the worst when you're an artist. But then I just think like, no, 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 no. It's all connected. <laughs> like yeah. if we don't have art, we don't have innovation in science and we don't have innovation in ideas and we don't have in like it in anywhere. We get stagnant and we become fascists. Yeah. You know? it's like, no, I, it's, I think it's fucking related. We become unfeeling. And I think I lament so often how many artists that aren't being able to perform their art, even just, I mean, art is an expression of the soul. Yeah. And why aren't we encouraging people to express their souls in that way? And how many people are missing out on that because they have to work a full-time job or two yeah. full-time jobs to support their families. Yeah. Like our system is irretrievably broken and it is particularly abusive toward artists who, like we said earlier about like the pandemic and things, like people yeah. turned to the artists as soon as they couldn't go do anything else, but were still not uh, revered in society. I think teachers are in the, under this in the same boat. Absolutely, it's another very creative, very like heart medium. Yeah, I mean, and even even with the artists that we do allow, you know, we measure their success based on money and not based on like what they're doing, what they're affecting, what they're, what they're asking us to yeah. ask. I don't know. Yeah. The whole, the whole ethos is just like, it's focused in the wrong place. Yeah. yeah. Our priorities as a, as a culture are skewed. Yeah. What would you like to see our priorities be? Uh, empathy and art. Yeah. <laughs> um, curiosity. That's yeah. Like such a big one. Curiosity for me. is definitely among them. I mean, like, how how many how many kids would be scientists right if they had the chance to have that curiosity and explore and yeah. what advances could we make for yeah. each other by having that instead we sort of live in this dystopian hellscape right we bring everybody down it's yeah. so gross it's like the most depressing thing okay we can't end on that okay okay <laughs> okay let's do this Will you talk to me about like the leadership that you do in the writing community? Yeah. So I'm the president right now of the League of Utah Writers, and we're an organization of about 500 writers in, in wow. Utah, uh, spread across the entire state and all corners of it. And really, um, the chief mission of the League is to create a safe, positive space for people to gather for uh, a, a writing community and have that increasingly under my leadership, we've really been working on trying to um, add a service component to that as well and trying to get into um, teaching in marginalized communities, helping folks that might not have the skills or the know-how to tell their stories, um, paths to telling them. Yeah. Um, and that's really the direction we're, we're heading as an organization um, to make sure that the people who need to tell their stories the most have the resources or what resources we can provide, whether that's in training or publishing opportunities or whatever, mm. to get those stories out there. Because I think stories are important. I think stories are like they matter. And I feel like a lot of the social ills that we deal with or a lot of the ignorance that we deal with can be combated with knowing each other's stories better. Amen. Um, maybe just kind of like under the surface of that idea is like, I I'd like to ask like, what are like, do you feel optimistic about individual humans, like opposed, opposed to like these bigger structures? Like, yeah, you, yeah, what, I what do. What are your thoughts about like people, individuals? It's rare 
it's rare that I find someone who is so set in their ways that they can't learn something or see something from a different point of view, especially if they're personally affected by it. Yeah. Right. Like I think the biggest thing that we see in people actually changing their minds for things is that they're personally affected by it. And the more and more we slide into this fascist hellscape, the more and more people are affected by it. And so like I see on an individual level that people are sort of waking up to that. Yeah, I really hope so. Yeah. It's something I think about so much. Like, you know, I've I've been like, I think I've always been, I've always felt this way, but I've been kind of leaning into it more recently of just this idea that like individuals are so interesting. Like, I mean, there are sociopaths and I guess that's interesting too, (laughs) but, um, but like by and large, like an individual person is like something to really behold. Yeah. And that's why stories matter too. Like, just like you said, like letting, like having someone tell you like what their life is like. And I also feel like finding the thing, finding the thing or the things that each individual can contribute like, like no one else can. Yeah. No. And I think that there are quiet things that people can contribute in ways that they didn't think that they could, because there's no way in our society right now to monetize it. Yeah. yeah, Right. Like there's definitely, right. You know, it's the, the woman who sings in the shower every morning, right? Like those, it's the, 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 the person who, uh, you know, writes down stories for their kids to post in their lunch boxes every day Amen. or things like that. Like there are these small too. acts of art that, that everybody's capable of that, that have a value beyond money, but as far as enriching the souls of yourselves and, and those around you. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Those just like little artful moments, like just mm-hmm. these. And it, and I think it can also just be like, you know, if someone comes at you with a certain kind of energy, like transforming, you know, finding a creative way to transform that back. And that's not a skill that everyone has, but you know, if you do like, that's what's more artful than that. Like, you know, deescalating something or like, you know, flipping a script. It's just, it's beautiful. It's, it's beauty. That's kind of all around. And yeah, our culture has not taught us to see or value those kinds of things. No, that we don't get to see behind the curtain of how, like I, there are, there are skills I wish I learned in, 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 in high school or, or school in general, where it was like critical thinking, learning to see behind the message, mm-hmm. learning to see the intent behind the message, um, learning to see the intent behind the artist, what the artist was intending. Those aren't things that I feel like I learned as well. Right. Like, you know, we got the, the 10th grade, read through of great Gatsby and, and, you know, explanations of all the symbolism that, that Fitzgerald may or may not have had there. And so I can, you know, we teach people how to do a close read of a piece of literature for the sake of doing a close read for a grade, not trying to decode the art around them. Yes. And, and I think that there's definitely, and I think that's a symptom of the fact that teachers aren't paid enough. Teachers don't have the access or the support they need to teach those things at the level they should even be. just the emotional bandwidth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Like it's just, it's these creative thinking, asking questions, like looking for other possibilities, like shifting a paradigm. Like what if it was this? What if it was this? Um, it's just, I don't know what's more important than that. Amen. I amen <laughs> myself. <laughs> It was an amen to you. It was an amen to the whole conversation. Okay. 
Unless there's anything else you'd like to say, I have two questions that I ask everybody at the end. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, it's my favorite. Okay, on this day, what's your dream collaboration? You can build a whole team if you want. High um, in the sky. My dream collaboration is I want to make a Star Wars movie with like ILM and everything. Uh, those guys. Who would you cast in it? Who, who would or, I cast? Or in who it? do you want to have, like? Just yeah, give me a little more. Oh man, uh, I would want to do something that would involve people that we haven't traditionally seen in Star Wars movies. Yeah, right. Like I would like to see more women and people of color and queer folks, like specifically queer folks that like haven't got the spotlight in those big Hollywood movies, um, and their acts of rebellion. Um, yeah. But with that sense of, of whimsy and adventure that I think Star Wars is really good at, at interrogating, mm-hmm. um, that's sort of pie in the sky. But other than, other than I that... I literally like, said pie in the sky like <laughs> when I gave you this question. So yeah, um, it's perfect. So, but I mean, other than that, like if something more realistic, I mean, there's definitely like, I would love to, to just work on a, a team with people and, and you know... I don't know. It seems like I feel like I'm accomplishing everything <laughs> in my, in my, my prose writing. Like I'm, I'm working on books. I've got books out on submission. I've got more books in licensed universes. I'm going through all of my pie in the sky stuff is all film related. It seems yeah. like I just want to work on movies. I love it. Well, I hope that gets, I hope that happens for you. Me too. I would love to know. And, and, uh, you know, come back in a couple of years if you if you want to yeah, no, give absolutely. us an update. And then tell everybody where to find your work. Uh, you can go find me at swankmotron.com, uh, which is my website. There are way too many Brian Youngs in the world. So. I, I found two other ones before I found yeah. you when I was... When I was prepping, yeah, I was like, wait, um, this doesn't seem right. Yeah, no, there's, yeah. there's a bunch of them. Uh, <laughs> or you can find me on Twitter at Swankmotron as well. Um, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of that way. You can find out about all the books that I've got coming out um, at, or that have already recently come out and, uh, you know, just keep up with me that way. Brian, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure to get to know you and to chat with you about these great topics. Oh, thank you for having me. It was my delight. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.